good to see you all. Gonna move this a bit forward. Uh, I thought we'd start this morning by taking a, a quick trip down memory lane to a high school experience that's now a decade old. Don't know how that happened so quickly, but it's year 10 camp. It's day five, the last day of camp. Now, I went to an all-boys school. It was a school camp, day five of camp, and the smell of teenage boys is uh, usually not a great combination, but we're all having a good time. We're all hanging out with each other, uh, but we get to day five of camp. Everything's been sweet. We've had fun, and we're in this uh, building where we had our lunch, our breakfast, our dinner each day. Uh, we'd just eaten lunch, and when uh, we're in there, the campsite director, he walks in, and with an incredibly stern voice, he gets all of our attention. And so he gets us all to sit down. We all know something is up because he uh, looked angry, so we knew something bad had happened. And as we're all sitting there in silence, the camp director informs us that someone had pooed in the middle of the bathroom floor. Someone had decided that rather than doing the normal thing and going to the toilet to do their business, uh, they decided for whatever reason they would rather do their number two two meters away from the toilet in the open area of the bathroom floor and just leave it there. Now, maybe this shouldn't be a surprise. We're just a bunch of 16-year-old boys on camp, right? But, you know, these things happen. But for someone, for whatever reason, they've done it. They've left a pile of poo in the bathroom. And our camp director, he was not happy. And so the punishment for the perpetrator was set. Because it was the last day of camp, their punishment was that they were going to have to clean the whole bathroom by themselves. Let me remind you, day five, all boys. A punishment of the highest order. And so with all of us in the room, he asked, who did it? Who was it? And would you believe, no one owned up to it. No one wanted to take ownership of their excrement sitting on the floor. No one wanted the punishment. And so because no one was willing to admit their guilt, uh, we were told we would all have to sit there until someone confessed. And so we sat. And at the start, it was kind of funny, right? You know, you know, we were just teenage boys and someone had pooed on the bathroom floor. It was pretty entertaining. But as the minutes went by, the many, many minutes, it gradually got less and less funny. And now there's the distinct sound of frustration in the room, increasing the pressure on the culprit to stand up and be a man. But no one stood up. No one took the blame. And so my friend and I, we had a light bulb moment. We had an idea. We didn't want to sit around all day because no one was willing to confess. And so we concocted a plan. We decided that we would clean the bathroom if our other friend, whose name was Howe, would be the one to admit to the crime. We thought it'd be funny. And really, no, with no hesitation at all, Howe was on board. Uh, but it was even more on board than we thought he would be. He stands up on top of his chair. It might have even been the table from memory. And in the most dramatic display you've ever seen, like how just makes up this whole incredible comical story that ended up with the climax of him being the one who pooed on the bathroom floor. Now, to this day, we don't know who actually pooed on the floor. Uh, there were plenty of theories circulating. But our friend how he took the blame, and my friend and I took the punishment of cleaning the bathroom along with a few more friends who decided to kindly help out too. Now, I don't share that story for no reason this morning. Last Sunday at church, 
uh, Nath preached a message called, What is Love? And in this message, we looked at how do we love God? How does God actually want us to love Him? What does the Bible have to say about it? Uh, So we looked at how do we love God? This morning, I want to think about a different question. Why do we love God? Why do we love Him? Why do we gather here every Sunday morning to worship Him? Well, the reason we love God is because He was willing to take the blame and the punishment for our actions upon Himself. And the punishment that Jesus took upon Himself was immeasurably greater than having to clean a repulsive boy's bathroom. He suffered much more greatly. And so this morning, we're going to be exploring a passage from the Bible. Uh, It's one of my favorites. It's a passage all about Jesus. And yet the passage was written 750 years before Jesus had even been born. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12. Isaiah was a man who was born around 783 B.C. He lived in Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And Isaiah was a prophet, which means God spoke to Isaiah, and Isaiah then delivered these messages to God's people. So he was God's mouthpiece, his messenger. In the book of Isaiah, the 66 chapters, it's a collection of all these prophetic messages that he delivered over about 50 years. So Isaiah prophesied to a nation that had turned a deaf ear to God. They were not following the law that God had set for them. They were no longer worshipping God the way he wanted to be worshipped, no longer loving God the way he wanted to be loved. And so God sends Isaiah to these people to warn them of the judgment that would come if they didn't turn back to God. And of course, we see these prophecies uh, come to pass as the nation is exiled. But along with all the warnings of uh, judgment, in the book of Isaiah, we also read prophecies of hope. Isaiah would prophesy of Israel returning to God. Isaiah would prophesy of their salvation and how it would come about. And it's in these various uh, prophecies that we hear about Jesus. We hear about a Messiah, the one who was to save Israel. And we see Jesus foretold 750 years before he would first step foot on the earth. And the passage we're going to look at this morning is one of those passages. uh, It was originally written poetically as a song in Hebrew. It's part of a larger section of Isaiah uh, called the Servant Songs, uh, which are four different songs of redemption. So we're going to be looking at uh, one of those songs this morning. So we're going to read the passage. Uh, If you've got your Bible or your phone with you, uh, have it open. Otherwise, the passage will be up on the screen behind me too. Uh, So we'll read and then we'll dig deeper into it. So from Isaiah 52, 13, it says, See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who upholded him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. 
Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils of the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Lord God, we ask this morning that you would uh, speak to us through this passage. Lord, that we might be able to see you more clearly than we did before. Amen. Uh, Most of you would have seen those uh, industry super ads, right? On TV on the radio where there'd be uh, two different people and the voiceover that says, you know, compare the pair, same age, same income, same starting balance. Well, as we explore today's passage, uh, we're going to try and do a little bit of that this morning. We're going to compare the pair. We'll look at what we've just read, uh, written about 750 years before Jesus was born, and we'll compare them to the New Testament writings uh, written uh, shortly after Jesus' life here on earth. And hopefully by doing that, we'll see clearly uh, that in Jesus, we see the fulfillment of this prophecy. Uh, But starting right from the opening sentence, God through Isaiah, he basically summarizes the whole prophecy that we're about to read. He provides an introduction sentence that simplifies all that's about to follow. And it says, see or behold, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And this is eventually where this prophecy ends up finishing as well, with the servant of the Lord being exalted, being raised and lifted up, walking in triumph. And this is important to begin with, begin and end with, because as we work our way through uh, this prophetic song, we see that the high majority of it doesn't seem very triumphant. It's not glorious at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's full of suffering and pain and rejection and death. But this song starts and ends the same way, where the servant of God, the Messiah, is exalted. He is victorious. And so as we begin this song with the premise of God's servant, who is to be highly exalted, what follows becomes full of irony as we instead behold the servant who suffers. This most exalted man of God is the same one who will experience the most horrific humiliation and suffering. Verse 14 says, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. And we see this in Jesus, don't we? 
As we read through the gospel accounts of Jesus, it's difficult to actually stomach what Jesus endured. On the night of the Passover, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was arrested, began horrific physical suffering. And the gospel accounts, when you read it, you know, they really do quickly move through it. They kind of gloss over some of the details. Matthew 26 and Mark 14, it says that the chief priest and the temple guard beat him on multiple occasions. Jesus was then handed to the Romans and Pilate where he was beaten further. And we know that Jesus was whipped with a Roman scourge, as was their custom. The Romans used a whip called a flagellum. The whip was made up of multiple uh, strips of leather with sharp pieces attached at the end of it. And so the victim would be tied to a post with his hands above his head so that his body was stretched taut. And as the whip was lashed, it would first tear through the skin, then it would tear through the muscles, then the veins, and then expose the internal organs. And when we study history, we learn that many didn't actually survive this form of torture, being scourged. The Roman officer's job was to maximize the pain and injury felt without killing the victim so that the criminal could still endure the agony of the cross that was to follow. Now, perhaps the reason Simon of Cyrene was commanded to carry Jesus' cross was because Jesus was actually being so severely and was too weak to carry it himself. And Isaiah, 750 years earlier, prophesies this, right? He says that his appearance was so disfigured and marred beyond looking human. Between being arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane and being nailed to the cross, Jesus was flogged multiple times. He was treated as the worst criminal. His blood flowed as his body was torn apart. But in verse 15, we begin to see the purpose behind his suffering. To sprinkle many nations. The word sprinkle being a reference to the Jewish customs. We see it in uh, Exodus 23 and 24 where uh, God was confirming his covenant with the Israelites, uh, where God promises to prepare the way for them to enter Canaan, the promised land, where he promises them uh, protection and security, uh, where the Israelites promised to obey all of God's commands. And so this covenant agreement was sealed and confirmed with a sprinkling of blood. In other parts of the Old Testament, we see blood being splashed as a symbol of cleansing and purifying. And here in Isaiah, we see that symbolism continued. Just as many were appalled at the sight of Jesus, so he will sprinkle many nations. So he will cleanse many people from their sin. So he will purify not just the Jewish followers of Jesus, but many nations. And of course, again, we see this fulfilled in Jesus. All around the world, people know the name of Jesus. The fame of Jesus wasn't restricted to the southern kingdom of Israel. Today, many nations, including our own, have been saved by Jesus because of what he suffered. In Romans 15, we see the Apostle Paul quote this verse. He says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. And this would have been a surprise to the Jews. The Jews were eagerly awaiting a savior who would save them, who would save their nation. But Isaiah prophesies and Jesus confirms that salvation is not just for the Jew, but the Gentile also. And so many nations and many people will come to see and understand that salvation can be found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And Isaiah continues his prophecy in chapter 53 now, verses 1 to 3. 
uh, where we see that Jesus was largely rejected by God's own people. And Isaiah asked the question, well, who has actually believed this message? You see, Isaiah anticipates that many won't actually believe this report about Jesus. Jesus is described as being like a root out of dry ground. In other words, born in less than ideal circumstances. He wasn't born in our fertile soil where he could flourish. He was born out of dry ground. And we see this as early as the nativity scene, as Jesus was born in a stable meant for animals. We see this as Jesus wasn't born into a a royal or noble family, but controversially to a virgin. He was born into a nation that was under Roman occupation, a nation that was largely very poor. He was a root out of dry ground. It says there was nothing about Jesus' outward appearance or standing that would attract people to him. He had no majesty. And in the eyes of the Jews, you know, Jesus, he was a nobody. Take Matthew 13, for example. As Jesus was in his hometown, performing miracles, healing the sick, and teaching the people about the kingdom of God, it says that the people were amazed at his wisdom and his ability to perform miracles. But then just one verse later, the people of his own hometown reject him. They take offense at him. Why? Because they wouldn't believe this person they grew up with could be the son of God. It didn't matter that he could perform miracles that only God could do. The people still rejected and despised him. And Jesus was constantly rejected again and again all throughout his ministry. The religious leaders were always looking for ways to have him killed. In Matthew 12, he's even accused of working for the devil. And just as the servant in Isaiah's prophecy was despised and rejected, so we see Jesus was also looked down upon. God sends a saviour and his own people want nothing to do with him. Their contempt and disgust for Jesus was so bad that they did not even want to look at him. This is Jesus, the son of God, the Messiah. But there was purpose to the suffering of the servant. The man of sorrows came to earth with a particular purpose. And in this prophecy about Jesus, 750 years before he took on flesh and stepped upon the earth, Isaiah plainly states what it is that Jesus achieved through his suffering. Verses 4 and 5. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Did you notice the substitutionary language in these verses? He took up our pain. He bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And here we clearly see the gospel of Jesus. This is the good news of Christianity, that Jesus substitutes himself with us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, the main message of the Bible is the story of a God who creates the world and he creates humanity to be in perfect relationship with him. God and humanity living in perfection. We see that right in the beginning as God creates the world. But it doesn't take much to see that's not the world we live in anymore. 
We live in a broken world. We see wars break out. We see people living in poverty. We see relationships break apart. We see pain and suffering every single place we look. And the reason for all of this is the problem of sin. You know, sin is everything we do that hurts God or hurts others. It's the pride we act upon. It's when we ignore God, we choose our own way. It's when we reject God's good commands of how we should live. And we think we know better, right? That's what sin is. When we fall short of God's holy standards, it's our transgressions and our iniquities. And we all sin. We all think things we shouldn't think. We all say things we shouldn't say. We all look and listen to things we shouldn't. None of us come even remotely close to God's perfect standard. We've all broken God's law. And the price for sin is to be punished by God, to be eternally separated from Him, separated from all that is good, to suffer because of sin. God says the penalty for our sin is eternal death. Because of our sin, we deserve the penalty. Just as a murderer or a thief deserves to pay the penalty for their crimes, so we before a holy God deserve a penalty. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that He pays the penalty for our sin. You know, a couple of years ago, I committed a crime. Uh, We used to live on a street uh, where if you wanted to park on that street during the day, uh, you need to show your parking permit on the windscreen of the car. Uh, so every time I parked in our street, I would put the permit up uh, onto the windscreen. And we lived at this house for years. Uh, not once did I ever see a parking inspector walk the streets. Anyways, one day I forgot to put my parking permit up. I left it in the little console thing in the car. And later that day, I discover a fine uh, sitting under my, wi- my windscreen wiper of the car. $120. See, what happened was I disobeyed the local council's rules. I parked in a permit area without a parking permit, and so I received the punishment. And so now I owe the council $120. But here's where the good news came for me. My dad comes to me and he says this, don't worry about paying the fine, I will pay it for you. So even though it was my fault and my fine to pay, my dad stepped in and he took the punishment He took the fine upon himself. I didn't have to pay a cent. I was no longer owing a penalty because someone else paid it for me. And that's what Jesus does, but in a cosmologically bigger way. Because of our sin, we had a debt owing to God. We had a debt to pay that we couldn't pay. But Jesus, he he steps in. He takes the punishment onto himself. He takes the wrath of God upon himself. And for all who choose to follow Jesus, they walk away with no penalty to pay. That's what this verse and the the prophecy in Isaiah and the whole of the Bible is saying. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus never sinned. He was the only one to ever live a life not deserving of God's wrath. Jesus knew no sin. He was fully righteous. And when we put our faith in Jesus, this glorious exchange takes place where all of our sin is imputed onto Jesus and Jesus' righteousness is imputed onto us. That's the offer of salvation. That's why verse 5 of Isaiah 53 in this prophecy written so long before Jesus became a man is so breathtaking. 
Because we see all of this culminate in Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. The servant in Isaiah's prophecy dies to pay the price that sin is owed. He is pierced, crushed, and punished, not because of his own sin, but because of the sin of others. Verse 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of a soul. So now when God looks at Jesus, he sees the sin of the world, and he pours out his wrath on him on the cross. When he sees believers in Jesus, he no longer sees their sin, but instead he sees Jesus' righteousness, and his righteous judgment is satisfied. And it wasn't that God the Father uh, forced Jesus, the Son of God, to go through with his suffering. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his, its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You know, Jesus didn't protest what he went through. When Jesus is speaking to a crowd, a crowd in John 10, he says this. He says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So Jesus lays down his life of his own free will. Before Jesus was condemned to be executed, he went through multiple trials. He, was, he stood before the Jewish Sanhedrin. He stood before the Roman court. And in none of these trials could any evidence actually be found to condemn him. If you were a lawyer, you would want to be on Jesus' side. There was no actual evidence of Jesus having done anything wrong. And Pontius Pilate, he said it himself publicly, publicly to the Jews in John 18, 38. I find no basis for a charge against him. John 19, 4. Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. John 19, 6. Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. And then in John 19, 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Pilate, the Roman judge, found no reason to punish Jesus. But because of the pressure the Jews imposed on him, he eventually caved in and ordered for him to be executed. You know, earlier when Jesus was standing trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin in Matthew 26, it says that the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false uh, evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. And then there's these accusations that are brought against him. And then verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. And then again, when Jesus was brought before Pilate, we can read in Matthew 27, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. And Isaiah prophesied this 750 years earlier, that he would be unfairly judged and yet, he would not protest and try and defend himself. Instead, he would remain silent, like a lamb led to the slaughter. Verse 8, 
by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. And we know that Jesus was unfairly treated, unfairly sentenced to death. And yet none of his own people protested or sought to save him. His own disciples denied him. His own people cheered when he was sentenced to death. And so he was put on a cross. He was cut off from the land of the living, punished to save and redeem the very people who put him on the cross. Verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Despite his innocence, Jesus died the death of a common criminal. Yet even in this prophecy, it says that Jesus would be buried with the rich in his death. Yet another detail we see fulfilled in the gospel accounts. In all the gospels, it says that right after Jesus dies, a rich man named Joseph asked Pilate for Jesus' body so he can bury him in his own tomb. Normally, it was custom that the the dead bodies were left to rot on the cross before being disposed of. Tombs, on the other hand, they were incredibly expensive. Only the most noble and rich would have their bodies buried in a tomb. To the people of his day, Jesus was just a, a common man who had shamefully died the death of a criminal whose life had amounted to nothing. And yet, as Isaiah foretold, he would be buried with the rich. And it's here that we see this prophecy begin to turn towards God's servant being exalted. Verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. You know, astoundingly, just as the prophet Isaiah foretells the death of the servant, so he also foretells of seeing the light of life again. He effectively predicts the resurrection of the servant. The servant will conquer death and prolong his days. And now we know the offspring of Jesus is all who believe in him and call on his name, those whose iniquities have been justified by Jesus. In the last verse in this song, it says this, Therefore I'll give him a portion among the great, and he'll divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So God rewards Jesus with victory because of the suffering he faced. Because he poured out his life unto death, because he made intercession for the transgressors. And in this one singular prophetic song written 750 years before the Son of God became flesh, we see so many parallels between the the servant in the song and Jesus Christ. And when Jesus resurrected and he returned to his disciples, it says this in Luke 24. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled 
that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You know, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that is written about him throughout the whole of the Old Testament. He isn't a make-believe character. He's not um, just some random person that existed. He is a historical figure who fulfills so much of what was written about him hundreds and thousands of years earlier. And so circling back to that first question, why do we love Jesus? Why do we love God? Why do we gather here every Sunday morning to worship him? Well, the reason we love God is because he was willing to take the blame and the punishment for our actions upon himself. And the punishment that Jesus took upon himself was far greater than having to, you know, clean a repulsive boy's bathroom. He suffered much more greatly. And this is why I worship Jesus, because Jesus first loved me. And so as always, whenever I speak up here, I want us to reflect and apply what we've listened to. And honestly, when I read and meditate on this particular passage from Isaiah, you know, if you're a believer in Jesus, I think the best thing we can do in response is just to worship him, to express our gratitude toward him. So we're going to sing a song. Uh, the band's going to come up. Um, it's a song called Man of Sorrows. It uh, might be unfamiliar. I'm not sure. A lot of you might have heard it before. Uh, it is a song written largely uh, based on this particular passage that we've looked at today. Um, if you're a believer in Jesus, really the best thing we can do when we open up a passage like that and we can see the lengths that Jesus actually went to to save us, to, to love us, just expressing our ingratitude towards him, I think, is the perfect response. If you're here today and you don't have faith in Jesus, then I'd urge you to I seriously consider learning more about him. Please come up, talk to us. We're all in need.